Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz trumpeter Dave Scott. He talked about a recent recording session that he had about growing up in Kansas City, living in Los Angeles for 11 years, going to school at USC during that time. And these days, he currently lives in New York and has been composing for and performing with his own jazz quintet. And he also has a new project featuring violin, piano, guitar, bass, and drums. He is recognized in the New York jazz community as a prolific composer. He is also a clinician and a very seasoned jazz cat with many stories and much to say. So please get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Dave, thanks for taking a minute out to speak with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, sure. No problem. What's going on with you lately? Kind of talk to me a little bit about any projects that are in the works and and just kind of what's been going on with you. Well, I have two main projects and then kind of a third that's a little bit of a collective. The two main projects are my quintet, which I recorded. I have four discs on Steeplechase with the quintet. It features some great musicians, Rich Perry, great tenor sax player, Gary Versace, a great piano player, John Abair. He's been touring a lot with Fred Hirsch lately. And Jeff Williams is also a great drummer who's, who's he goes back the day he used to play with Weedman and Richie Byrack and those guys look out for him. And so anyway, that's kind of my main project, but then I also have another project that we just recorded just this week for Steeplechase. And I call it my violin band. And I, it's a little bit different uh, instrumentation. I mean, have the standard piano-based drums, but uh, also have a guitar and a violinist. Uh, we just we just recorded this past Monday uh, just for Steeplechase. So Steeplechase takes a while. I mean, I would think probably it'll come out in about a year because he does a lot of uh, he takes on a lot of projects yearly, and it takes him a while to get them out. So those are my two, and then my uh, my, my third project is is a uh, Kind of a collective with John A. Bear, uh, the bass player Gary Versace, and this great drummer Billy Mintz, and uh, we get together and play some. And I'm I'm trying to I'm looking for ways that we can get get that band out there. You know, play play some gigs locally, and then and uh, hopefully get that recorded also at some point. So, but Very the violin cool. band is fresh. We just we just did it. So. Wonderful. Well, let's get back to your Kansas City roots. Talk about growing up here. Talk about how you got into jazz, how it all began. Well, my dad, and I grew up in the 60s in Kansas City, and my dad was the high school band director at Ruskin High School, where I went to high school. And my dad played the trumpet. He played gigs around town, and he was you know, a jazz trumpet player. And my mom was a very good singer, and she comes from a family of musicians, so I just, you know, kind of fell right in there. My dad started teaching me trumpet when I was uh, around 10. You know, I started playing originally at 5, and then I lost my baby teeth, and I couldn't play. <laughs> you got to have teeth, you know, to play the trumpet. So, uh, but then I started back up again when I was about 10. And, you know, they used to play jazz. They would have jam sessions sometimes at the house. They did gigs around town, and then my dad kind of got to know all the 
Kansas City Jazz Sixers at the time, Paul Smith. Matter of fact, Paul Smith has told me that his first gig he ever played was with my folks. My mom sang and my dad played trumpet. And, you know, back in the 60s, the jazz festival, the Kansas City Jazz System was one of the best jazz festivals in the world. I was 14 years old. My, my folks would go every year. I was 14 years old. I think I was in the eighth or ninth grade. I don't remember. My mom had the flu. You know, they used to hold it down at the old municipal auditorium, and they would bring in all the big names, you know. So my mom had the flu, couldn't do, go, so my dad took me. And that was it. I was hooked. And I remember vaguely, I mean, uh, uh, not vaguely, I remember uh, almost like it was yesterday, some of the the people that played Pete I. If you remember Pete, Pete I Trio played. Uh, There were a lot lot of local groups featured on the festival as well as the names. And then Gary Sibbles with Paul Smith and Tommy Ruskin. And I think Wesley Knowles played bass with him. And I heard all j- just jazz for hours, you know, eight, nine hours straight. Cannonball Adderley was there with his quintet. They had just done Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. I'm not sure if it was that same year, but Wes Montgomery was there one year, too. Clark Terry always came in and played with Arch Martin. Uh, Arch was a close family friend. Uh, and with Arch and George Salisbury, I don't know if you remember him. He had a trio. Yeah. And they would play every year. It, it was great. I mean, that was it. I was hooked on jazz. And then as I got older, when I, when I, the high school, we had a very good jazz program at the, at, at the school at Ruskin. I went to Ruskin High School. And I also played in this group called the Junior Kicks Band. That's where I met Rod Fleeman. Rod and I got to be great friends. We're still friends. And uh, we would play together. We would have little jam sessions. And we played a concert. We would go and play little assemblies like at schools. Uh, I think at this point I was probably a junior in high school. And we would play assemblies at schools. And one of the schools we played at was Lee Summit High School. And Pat Matheny was going to school at Lee Summit. Pat approached me after the concert, after the assembly, and, and came up and he said, Hey, man, you know, I heard you play. We need to, we need to get together and play, which we did. You know, then, so I started playing with Pat Matheny. We had a little band. We still have a recording that we recorded in the Lee Summit. It was over the holidays. Pat somehow got the keys to the band room at Lee Summit High School, and we went in there on an old reel-to-reel and recorded a demo tape to uh, send to the Kansas City Jazz Festival. We wanted to try to get on the jazz festival. And Pat was maybe 16, and I was 17 at the time. Paul Smith played piano. Tommy Ruskin played drums. And then Kevin Clements, who was also, uh, he went to school with Pat and uh, a bass player, young bass player about our age, 17, maybe 16 or 17. I still have that. Paul actually made a CD of it a few years ago. I still have that somewhere. But Cool. Through there, my roots are in Kansas City. You know, but Kansas City has always had, I feel like, a, I've been to other cities a lot and, and traveled and, Played in other cities, and Kansas City's right up there with the best. I mean, it's it's always had a a good jazz scene, and and from what I can tell now, from all the guys I talk to, it's 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 kind of thriving right now. Yeah, know? absolutely. Yeah, it sure is. So 
I want to get kind of a handle on your trajectory, your geographical lifeline of where you went from Kansas City. Did you go to Southern California to go to school after Kansas City? Well, that, no, that came much later. I, I uh, we left Kansas City uh, my senior year in high school. My dad took a college job teaching at uh, at the time Northeast Missouri State. It's now Truman State. So we left there, and I went to school there my freshman year, and then uh, we were there for a couple of years, and then he then he took a job at, at the time Southwest Missouri State, which is now Missouri State in Springfield. And I stayed there for a year, and then I went down to, I had some friends going to school at North Texas State, which at the time was the mid-'70s. That was like kind of the jazz school, that in Berkeley, were the places that you went if you wanted to be a serious jazz musician, right? And so I went down there. I stayed down there for about a year and a half. At that time, I wasn't really serious about school. I just wanted to play. But same thing. When I got down there, I met all these uh, young, aspiring jazz musicians like myself. We used to have jam sessions. Some of the guys that were there, Lyle Mays, are pretty famous now. Lyle Mays was there. Dennis Irwin, who who died a few years ago, unfortunately, but a great bass player who played with John Lovano, Jim Lovano, John Schofield, and uh, played with Art Blakey. Uh, Dennis lived right across the street from us, you know. So just kind of like a small little scene, you know, of people that were going to school at North Texas and people who are still friends, friends of mine. I spent a, uh, some time there. And then I came back to Springfield for a while, and then I, I ended up moving to New York in my uh, early 20s, or mid-20s. And I spent three years in New York and... Uh, that was quite an experience. So I spent three years there, and then I, I had some some issues with drug addiction and alcoholism, and I came back to Springfield where my folks were living to kind of try to get it together. It took a while, but I, I did some rehab and, and cleaned up and sobered up. Uh, then I decided to go back to school. And so I finished my bachelor's degree there at uh, Missouri State. And then I went to Southern California. This was like 1988. I, I did my master's degree at uh, USC, Southern California. And excellent school. Uh, and that was one of the few schools at the time that you could actually get a master's degree in jazz studies, which I wanted to do. I got on as a teaching, shift, a teaching assistant. And it, it was nice. It paid for all my tuition, and I got a stipend, so it, that helped a lot. And then I ended up staying in Los Angeles for 11 years and kind of playing around the jazz scene in Los Angeles. I taught part-time at USC. After I graduated, they kept me on as an adjunct. And I taught at another school out there part-time. And then I was just playing a lot. So I, in, in a sense, I still have, I have a lot of roots out there, too. There's a lot of great musicians in Los Angeles. And uh, a couple of guys in particular that I met when I was out there were Tony Malaby, who's a great sax player who lives in New York now, and Billy Vince, the drummer I mentioned earlier. And we formed a little quartet, and we used to play uh, gigs around there. Tony was living at Phoenix at, at the time. Great musicians who had a tremendous effect on, on me. 
I'd always been drawn to the, like the kind of the left side, you know, the avant-garde side of the music. Because uh, when, I, when I was young, I used to love to listen to Ornette Coleman, some of Miles Davis's later music, Coltrane's later music, you know, and uh, people like that. And Tony and Billy were into playing that kind of music. And so that kind of propelled me into, had a, had a, a large influence on what I'm actually composing and, and the, the music that I'm playing today in New York. So, so that's kind of a timeline. Sorry, that's kind of a long, uh, long answer, but. No, that's, that's, that's a good trajectory to get a kind of a feel of your career and where you've been and what's influenced you. And it's, it's interesting because you do have such a distinct cross cut of this country from one coast to the other and right in the middle of Kansas city. And you've right. covered a lot of geography, played with a lot of people, played in a lot of festivals. How do you feel about your career? If you lean back and think about what you've done, all of the miles you've covered, you've dedicated your life to jazz. Are you happy? I mean, playing the music is what, what does it for me. You know, and there's, there's, there are times when it, not the easiest life can be very rewarding like me just doing this recording list this week and listening back to the playbacks and i mean i'm fortunate i get to play with some of the greatest musicians in the world you know and and they're playing my music my compositions and uh uh for me personally that's that's a huge reward I, I, you know, that's kind of what makes me tick. And I'm fortunate. I've, I've been doing what I love to do. Even the teaching. I mean, I teach part time. And that's kind of the way it is in New York. There are very few people these days. And the scene has changed so much. There are very few people that, that make a living just playing and playing, you know, what we would call jazz or creative music. And, uh, Two of my friends, John Abair and Gary Versace, are, are playing my quintet. Well, John is still doing that. Gary recently took a job teaching at Eastman because he just got tired of, you know, he's all over the world, but he's, he's on planes all the time, just traveling. And it's not always, you know, his favorite stuff to be doing. So it's kind of a trade-off. So most of the musicians in New York that I know and play with, they make a lot of their living teaching part-time. And so I've been fortunate. I, I teach at a little college in Connecticut. I have a uh, Western Connecticut. And uh, I'm an adjunct there. I go up there one day, sometimes twice a week. And I teach jazz trumpet and I run some ensembles. And uh, But that's rewarding to me, too, because I'm still actively dealing with the music. You know, Now I'm trying to teach young people how to play this music. I enjoy that as well. I mean, to answer your question, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like I'm fortunate because I've been able to to do what I love to do. You know, with all the places that you've lived and all the players that you've seen live on stage, what jazz performance have you witnessed that really shook you, that really made a profound impact on you? Well, there have been a few. Some of those, like uh, when I saw when, when I was young in Kansas City, when I saw Cannonball Adderley. And then, I don't know if you remember, there was a club called The Landmark. It was yeah. a union station. And I yeah. saw some great music there because all the headliners at the time would come through Kansas City and they'd spend a week 
sometimes two weeks at the landmark. I heard Herbie Hancock's band Sextant. That that band had a big impact on me because I was 19 at the time, and I was looking to explore more avant-garde that side of the music, and Herbie was doing that at the time. I heard weather reports there. You know, they came through Kansas City, spent a week there. And among others, Dizzy Gillespie, Clark Terry, heard a lot of great music down there. Cannonball, Cannonball would come through, Cannonball Adderley would come through. I'd go hear them down there at the Landmark. And very inspirational. You know, I was fortunate to get to hear a lot of that. If I had to choose one, also there was a, there was a George Ween, you know, who always did all the big jazz festivals back in the 50s and the 60s, also had a touring a uh, little festival that came through Kansas City once I heard it when I was 15, and Monk, Monk was there. Uh, Gary Burton, I remember Roy Haynes was playing drums with Gary Burton. Uh, so I got to hear a lot of great stuff when I was a kid. But if I had to pick one, uh, when I was 17 years old, I had gotten to be friends with Clark Terry, the family, and, and Clark had come and, and, and was a guest artist for a concert at Ruskin. And I had gotten to know Clark pretty well. And he invited me to come to, to New York just to visit and hang out for a couple of weeks. So right after my junior year, I remember I, I got on a plane, flew to New York, and hung out with Clark Terry for a couple of weeks. And we went to see Miles Davis at the Village Gate. And that was 1970. So Miles was really pushing the envelope at the time. You know, he was, he was, uh, that was his Light of the Fillmore band. They were playing very avant-garde, very open, uh, very little structure. And it was a great band. It was Chick Corea, Keith Jarrett, Dave Holland, Jack Dijonette. Steve Grossman was the young phenom playing saxophone with him at the time. And this was right after the quintet had broken up with Chick Corea and, and, uh, Wayne Shorter and, and Dave Holland and DeJanet, and then he just transitioned into this band. When I heard that, you know, I'd been listening to early Miles at the time. I'd been listening to some of his earlier music, which is still great, obviously. But when I heard that live, it uh, had a profound effect on me. And I thought, wow, this is, I want to explore this kind of music. So I went home and I started to listen to more than the avant-garde. I would listen to Miles' music at that period, right? They recently came out with a recording shortly after that called Miles Davis Live at the Fillmore. And it was the same band. And it was like at the time a two-record set and they they had tracks from each night, different nights. And I started exploring that music more. I started listening to Ornette Coleman, later Coltrane, and uh, so that, if I had to pick one, I would say that that would be the one. Right. That was June of, June of 1970. Cool. Let me ask you a question. Why do you love jazz? I can't, I can't really give you an answer other than when I first heard the music. I mean, there's so many, you know, the rhythmic aspect, the feel, the grooves. I was drawn to the, you know, the complexity of it. You know, it's very not just emotionally rewarding, but intellectually rewarding. 
you know, this takes effort. I have students who get frustrated and I say, you know, music doesn't happen overnight. You know, it takes years to develop and to learn the language and, you know, jazz is a language. But basically just the, when I first heard it, when I remember when I was 14 and I went to the jazz festival and heard the music live like that, just the general aura, I was hooked. Like I had an opinion. It's like, yeah, you know, it's like, okay. You know, and then I yeah, remember at the, at the end of the night that Clark Terry, they had a big, at the end of the whole festival, they had like a, what they call a big jam session at the end. And there they all were playing together. Uh, remember they were playing with the Kansas City rhythm section. I can't remember who was in it, but Cannonball, Clark Terry, Nat Early, and, and they're up there. Clark Terry and Nat Early were up there trading. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. I want to try to yeah. play like those guys, you know, and that was it. Right on. So let me ask you this. Everyone has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, your fans. But when you wake up and you face the day, you face the world, who do you think you are? I mean, I get up and I think, okay, today I'm trying to, the night before even, I'm trying to figure out my day. If I have to teach, if I have a rehearsal. I mean, I still practice, you know. I'm still trying to find, trying to get better, you know. I'm trying to find new. The beauty of jazz, I guess, to me, and, and this kind of music, improvised music, is it's endless. I mean, when Coltrane died when he was 40 years old, and if you listen to his timeline, just in his period of 10 years, how far he came, how much vocabulary he created, right? How the level of his his art rose just in those 10 years. And he was still going when he died. He was still trying to find new things to play. So that's the beauty of it. I mean, it's endless, the vocabulary that we create, you know. And the beauty about being in New York is that I'm playing with people like that that all the time that are very good at it and who are striving for that. Like, we're all playing original music. We get together to play, to experiment, and everybody's bringing in original music that they've recently written or maybe it's something they wrote in the past. We might open up and play a standard, but then we'll, uh, we'll move on to original music. And it's very challenging, keeps you on your toes. It's, it's almost like you're constantly involved in doing a workshop. So I know it's kind of a long answer, but, but when I, when I get up, I think about that, okay? I, or I, I set up every week, I have a little studio across the hall from my apartment with a piano and drums. The week before, a couple of weeks ahead, I'm always setting up little to get together with our mu- musicians to experiment and play music. Uh, sometimes I compose new stuff. I want to hear it so I can find musicians. That's the beauty of New York. Everybody wants to play. Everybody's trying to, uh, everybody's experimenting. And uh, so that's kind of, that's, that's where I'm at. And that's what, why I, I thrive on that. I guess if I said who I am, I, I'm a musician. I'm just a musician and I'm dedicated to it. And I'm, I'm still trying to get better. That's a great way to wrap everything up. Dave, thank you for taking some time out to talk about your life, your music, your time here in Kansas City. I appreciate it. Okay, Joe. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Los Angeles, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over this earth, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Dave for his time, his music, and his stories. 
If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.